stained, scented. Stent, scented when I enter, not stinted. Soul scented. Whole when I enter. Pass all their plays to bring forth my dimension. Try to gaslight me, but my path is lit. My path is lit by Harriet, showing me the North Star. Off right where you are. Yeah. We enter in these conversations for freedom. Soul scented. Welcome to my home studio that I am creating for the next iteration of my life journey and this program, Soul Centered Conversations, Freedom Chronicles. Mm. So I just want to pause there because this Freedom Chronicles piece mm. is so important. It is like the phase that I see like really exploring what freedom looks like, what freedom looks like for all of us. And so... I'm really especially grateful that you're here today, that you said yes, that we made it happen. Um, what I'm going to do, we're, we're going to spend a few, well, you know, as long as we feel uh, there's, you know, space to keep the conversation going, is what I want us to talk about is what I feel like is an important topic about white responsibility in ending racism especially in this country but mm -hmm. you know really globally mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, yes. and um white responsibility in ending all the systems of oppression you know and you are someone that i know cares about this very much uh, we have been friends for a little while now and you know i have a great deal of respect for you as um, kind of like the multi-layered person you are, you know, as an artist, uh, you have such a gift for the music that you play. Um, but I think what I've seen through your art is the way that you pay homage to black artists, mm. to the artists that came before you. And I do want us to talk a little bit about your art probably at the beginning, but like what I've seen is the art is like a vessel or a vehicle to connection to the roots of the music that you play, which I feel like is jazz and samba and probably way more. But like, I see that you intentionally think about like, oh, who played this before me? Mm -hmm. Like, how do I give like credit and not try to act like <laughs> I discovered all of it? You know, <laughs> so there's like a humility mm -hmm. that you have and a grace that you have that I respect. And then you know, you say you're not a person that speaks a lot. That's why I'm super honored that you're here today. But like when you speak, it has an intentionality. And when we speak about white responsibility, I feel like you teach me like new levels. And so that's why I wanted you to be here today. Thank you so much, Damali. I am I am honored, truly. I've been a fan of, you know, of your Soul Center conversations <laughs> for a minute and um, many minutes. And... I yeah I I um I think I'm more comfortable speaking through music than speaking. But you're somebody that I have so much respect for and admiration for and trust. Like I feel safe with you, and I'm like you know okay, time to be on my growing edge <clears throat> and uh, and do this. So I'm really honored. Well, thank you. I'm so grateful that you feel that trust. Because, I mean, that is the foundation, I think, so to so, so many things, right? Mm -hmm. And when you can trust, you can tell the truth, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, it's interesting because I think <sighs> I'm learning to trust myself more <laughs> and to trust that there's a need for these types of conversations. Yes. 
And so I'm just here for it. And I'm so grateful that you said yes. So I want to start at the beginning. Like, I feel like, so I met you through Heart and Soul Center of Light, uh, which is a spiritual community that I'm a part of, that Annie's a part of. Um, But I would see you playing. Mm -hmm. And you... (laughs) Generally, I see you playing a horn of some kind. <laughs> I feel like there's many horns that you in the horn family that you play, but you play them with a soul. You know, it's one of those <laughs> it's one of those stereotypical kind of moments for black folks where you're like, oh, that person's playing like with a little bit of that kind of like energy, like you know, that there's like something there a deeper connection mm-hmm. to the music. So I want you to maybe just talk a little bit about your relationship to heart and soul, but also your relationship to music. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, uh, it's such, I, I guess, a profound part of my life and my connection to um, my understanding to liberation and to black liberation and to black experience in this country, which then has such a relationship to my feeling of responsibility as a white body person in this country. So mm-hmm. it's all mm-hmm. super connected for me. Um, so, uh, and heart and soul is, is a huge piece of that also. So I, I started coming to heart and soul. Um, I have known and played music um, with Valerie Joy Fidmont mm. for many years, um, starting in Valerie Joy. Valerie Joy, shout out. <laughs> Um, and so through her, I got to be introduced to Heart and Soul. And um, I think I came a few times just just as a guest t- tagging along. Mm. Um, but then got invited to play music. Um, I think when, when Valerie Joy was a musical inspiration was the first time I got to play. Mm. And then, you know, um, of course, just was so um, in, amazed and inspired by the Reverend Dr. Andrea Earle and the mm-hmm. whole community. Um, and so then started um, getting to play music more regularly and attending more regularly. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like home. It's the first um, spiritual community I've ever, you know, joined officially. And um, so much, you know, the the message, the teachings, the community, the music, the commitment to justice. Mm. You know, Imagining Justice, mm-hmm. again, hosted by Valerie Joy and also David Walker. Yeah, shout out, David. Shout out. Yeah, and I feel like that's where it's like also... the whole family shout out. Reverend Andrea. <laughs> There's lots of shout outs. <laughs> but that's also where I got to know you better, I think, is through, mm-hmm. through IJ, too. Yeah. It's where I first heard you, um, your poetry. Yeah. got to know you as a poet. Yes. Um, so, anyways, I'm, you know, just, it's been life-changing for me. Life-expanding. Yes. Yeah. I know it will continue to be. Yes, heart and soul. Can I just say that there are some communities, and I'm sure everyone has one. Like, I feel like for most of us, we have a place we touch in that, like, gives us that expansive feeling. And heart and soul has been that for me, for sure. A place to root into who I am and whose I am and really explore my gifts. And yeah. so I think Imagining Justice, which is a like a weekly gathering um, to imagine the world we really want, right? Yeah. And in that space, David and Valerie Joy have b- made me welcome as a voice to contribute, you know, to what this could look like. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate, but I also appreciate learning from so many other people. Yeah. And so 
they curate a space that I think is really uh, the word you use expansive is like opens up to like all the avenues yeah. to justice right and so, so yeah it's been good it's been a good space so I'm so glad we connected there because I do feel like you know the Sunday piece of it is very we're tuned into the message that Reverend mm -hmm. Andriette shares generally mm -hmm. and the music and all of that and then there's Imagine Justice, which you go, it's like another layer that you're able to like really sit in mm -hmm. and then connect with people in different ways. So I feel like I was able to hear a little bit more from you in that space too. Mm -hmm. And like realize that, oh, I feel like from here, I understand that Annie sees this connection that like, like I introduced the music, um, the spirituality, but also like the responsibility. Yeah. And before I turn to like the responsibility piece, I do want to just uh, name that you're a part of some, well, you're a part of a few musical uh, collabs or projects or initiatives or families mm -hmm. that um, are really worth speaking into the room. But I think Samba Da is like a huge, uh, that's how I first came to really know you as a musician, mm -hmm. like yeah. your musicianship yeah. through Samba Da. But I know that you have other projects that you've, you know, throughout the years, um, <laughs> through the pandemic too, I think. But I really want to highlight Samba Da. And if there's anything yeah. else you want to highlight too. Yeah, well, that's that's a great place to start because that's, you know, been my musical home and my musical family for the past 20 years. Right. So big, big part of my life. Dada. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and all the other yes. members. Yeah. 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 And um, in Samba, now we play Afro-Brazilian music. So it's, again, it's just, it's rooted in, in Africa as the musical and spiritual and ancestral home. And the same way that African and black music got to this country is the same way that it got to Brazil. And mm. so there's this, incredibly powerful and profound diaspora and mm. you know in connected in so many ways but the musical connection is really powerful as just a um like a, a keeper of that lineage mm. and always moving towards freedom mm. you know and um I, yeah and to me i can't love that music I can't love black music without also understanding its relationship to freedom and liberation mm. and also how it got here. Right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's, and, and yeah, Samba Da and Donda um, and her musical lineage and, and artistic lineage has been such a huge teacher, you know, mm -hmm. to me and had a profound impact in it. And it goes back further for me in terms of my teachers um, to to when I was in school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, in junior high school, I had this incredible teacher who, who, who taught the whole music program at my junior high. And he was a jazz trumpet player mm. and a black man. Okay. Um, Mr. I was going to say, is he black? Yeah. Mr. Frederick Joel <laughs> Black Coleman. bodied. Yeah. Yes. And um, just embodied so much. Um, musical legacy and inheritance and past that you know he was just such an incredible teacher that he, he embodied it and so he taught us mm. you know so much and it was you know uh it was a junior high school in santa rosa california so it wasn't 
it was a little bit diverse, especially who ends up in the music right, program. But, right. You know, it was mm-hmm. a lot of white kids who yeah. didn't at that point in time. I don't know that we could have articulated exactly what our relationship was, especially oh. to jazz. Um, and he he had a way of, of, of transmitting that and teaching us, at least laying the foundations. So mm. Very grateful for that. Well, there's like two things in there. It's still, they're not as many black teachers as we need in school. Right? There's just like always a shortage of black teachers. And I don't have the data points right now, but it is like, like a huge gap yeah. between black and white teachers. Like I feel like there's something like 80% or 70% white bodied teachers versus like, I don't know, I don't want to make up the statistics, but I think it's something like 13, like it's some very low percentage. Yeah. Um, and then black male teachers, mm-hmm. that's a whole nother thing. So I feel like there's so much that the education system could learn from just that story about mm-hmm. teaching things in this embodied way that like says, I like live and breathe this. Right, exactly. Yes. Exactly. I live, yeah. this is not theoretical. I didn't just read it in a book. Like there is some lived wisdom that I bring into this space that then lights kids up. Yep, exactly. You know, I like, oh, exactly. I want to know that. And I yeah. just see that as a missing component because we, I've done some work in the educational space and, you know, in some of the schools that I've done some projects in, there's a lot of white teachers. And again, I'm not against white teachers. If you really, you know, have a heart for teaching youth, I'm not, I'm not knocking you and... I think part of this conversation yeah. today is how do you know what you don't know? Like, how do you yeah. say to yourself, well, I don't actually know about this thing. So right. maybe I should bring in someone to support me as I teach this. Or how do I kind of like see the depth of the need that students can have um, as they navigate the systems of oppression? Mm-hmm. And like, so they show up in the classroom needing maybe a little more empathy today, needing a little more grace today. Um, And I think there's a thing in white superiority, (laughs) domination, control, and compliance culture Hmm. that says, well, you just have to be who I want you to be in this moment. And that's just not. So there's, we could go into, (laughs) we could go into education (laughs) space right away. There's so many places (laughs) we could go, but that's, that is so true. And when, 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 as you were speaking that truth, um, it reminded me of like how much fear there is um, amongst white people of somehow that speaking that and teaching that is somehow going to be like detrimental, you know, and, and that's what this whole misinformation campaign, mm-hmm. miseducation campaign. Thank you, this thing, Lord, um, on on you. critical race theory right. and and which is not even the correct name for what they're actually talking about, which right. is just a more expansive and inclusive education, right? Yeah. And and the idea that somehow white kids are gonna like suffer, yeah. and it's like I you know I am living and breathing proof that that is, the opposite is true, right? You know, and and I know that's true, mm. you know. Um, so it's just. Well, let's 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 drop in there really quickly because I was watching. Uh, I was like scrolling through TikTok today, mm. and there was a TikToker. I wish I remembered her name right now, but she's black identified, saying that um, recently a teacher tried to 
give a lesson on empathy to the class, to their class. And it was like a general, like empathy lesson. It hadn't, mm -hmm. it didn't have any roots to having empathy to black people or having empathy to trans people. It was just like an empathy lesson from what they were describing. And there was a parent that called the teacher very angry <laughs> about this liberal agenda wow. around teaching empathy. Oh, wow. <laughs> and like when I saw the TikTok, I was like, are we serious? Like something as fundamental as like empathy, just imagining what someone else might be experiencing so that we can have a little more compassion and you know just a little more grace is now become politicized yeah that's amazing right yeah and i'm like not a biblical expert but i'm pretty sure that like the teachings of jesus that 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 christianity is based on mm. pretty much like support empathy yeah. <laughs> and compassion and it's amazing how that is somehow Wow. Mind blown. Yeah, and and the thing is, that's kind of <laughs> if a parent, um, and like they didn't say white parent, black parent, but I'm assuming, you know, Definitely. just based on yeah. the TikTok and yeah. based on where we are with the yeah. to your point about critical race theory, which is really history, yeah. uh accurate teaching <laughs> of history. Um the but the for the uproar that is coming from generally white bodied people, yeah. I'm assuming that this is a white parent. And the thing that I keep coming back to is like Resma Menachem's work. There's so many great uh, kind of thought leaders, people saying, you know what? We think racism only hurts black, brown, mm -hmm. indigenous people. You know, there's a school of thought that um, by not teaching the truth, you're only hurting black, brown, LGBTQ+, um, trans, let's just put the list of p potentially like what we call traditionally marginalized communities mm -hmm. there. Like we think that we're harming those communities, but our white body communities are not being harmed. But I would argue with Resma Menachem that the harm is happening all the way around. Oh, that white that. folks yeah. who are marching in the streets and going to the school board and passing bills are hurting themselves. Yes, yes. So I'd love to hear what you think about um, that. I totally agree. And I, yeah, I um, I think that uh, I always come around because she just articulated it so brilliantly, but um, uh, there was an interview that I watched uh, of Toni Morrison being interviewed. I, I don't want to misattribute it, but I believe it's like Charlie Rose who did... Uh, I think so, actually. Yeah, I th mm -hmm. yeah, I'm sure you know the interview. But but um, she, the interviewer asks, um, and it's a, it's a white interviewer. There's a couple of different ones, and so there's one yeah. where there's a white Tony woman. Tony Morrison's classic. Where there's a, a white man interviewing <laughs> Tom. I, may, I might be, like, confusing the two. But anyway, she is asked by a white-bodied interviewer um, about some, something about the impact of racism, you know, on, on her and on the black community. And she says, well, you know, really, I think the question is, you know, about the harm, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's not to, of course, deny the very real harm, but she flips it. And she's like, you know, I think that you need to ask what the harm is to white folks, right? Because the lie of white supremacy, she's, you know, and she like famously says, you know, if the only way that you can feel tall is to have me on my knees, right. then it's you who have a problem. Right. 
And <laughs> I, yes. I just love that. That was like a mic drop moment. Yes. But it's like, I think that um, by, by ignoring the truth and by embracing sort of the, the, the cognitive dissonance that you have mm-hmm. to have mm-hmm. to be white in this culture and not, mm-hmm. um, and not see a problem with white supremacy, it's, it's absolutely harming white folks. Thank you, Annie. Because here's the thing, is that, and I want to be sure to say that I want any black, brown, indigenous, any traditionally marginalized population listening to this to understand that I am not, and I'm sure you're not saying there's been no harm to us as black-bodied, brown-bodied, indigenous. There's been a magnitude of harm that, for me at this stage of my life, I am like in a insistent place that it stop. I'm in a place where I'm like, no, I'm not gonna tolerate uh, this continue, especially on an interpersonal level. If there's any interpersonal stuff that is harmful to me, I'm gonna take care of myself and and I want a collective care to be happening that Mm -hmm. we're taking care of folks who are harmed repeatedly. Like we cannot allow, to me, I cannot watch and continue to watch this. So. I'm going to do everything I can to ensure I'm okay and folks are okay to the best, you know, so whatever that looks like, right? There's so many avenues to that. Like, you know, Trisha Hersey, I talked to her a couple days ago about rest. Yo, folks, we need more rest. We need more silence. We need more space. You know, I talked to Diego Perez. He's talking about meditation and stillness, heart and soul get you a spiritual right so whatever it is that we need and then there's the essentials there's maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of stuff so between all of that there needs to be repair yes and transformation of the harm is my point yes on that said white folks white bodied people the buying into this superiority is harming you yeah it's a harm to you whether you know it or not and that's what I really want to crack open in this conversation. Yeah. And I want to hear what what's an example. What, what how do you think this shows up in white community? Oh gosh, there's such such a so many layers to that. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, and and a couple of different things came came to mind as as I listened to what you were saying. Um, and. Because I think I think the first thing that comes to mind is that when you're not living in truth, when you're not able to look at the truth of your current existence and also your history, then you're you're cut off, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that part of what like the construction of white identity in this country. Um, has required is white people to to cut themselves off from the truth mm. of what that whiteness has um, has meant, mm-hmm. you know. Mm. And I think when when you're cutting yourself off from a truth, you know, about your history and the history <laughs> of the people that you come from and what that construction of whiteness represents, then you you, you can't really be fully. Like, Im- like you can't really embody your, the fullness of your your identity and, mm. and, and of your yourself. 
Mm. You know, and so it, re- it really requires, like, you know, I, I kind of said it before that word cognitive dissonance, but it's like that idea that you really cut yourself off from what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's been a part of the way that white culture, white supremacist culture operates in this country, mm-hmm. which is why it's so scary and so threatening to start to speak, you know, honestly about and teach history, mm. you know? And, it, you know, like the the James Baldwin quote that, that Reverend Andriette loves so much is that, you know, not everything that his face can be changed, but, mm-hmm. but nothing can be changed until you face it. Yes. You know? And I, I think this has to be changed. I think so, And we too. have to repair the harm, and, and we have to build a different kind of world. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't do it until we face it. Mm-hmm. And that work is white folks' work. Thank you. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so much you said there, but one thing that I woke up to this is okay i have a part i'm here on the planet so there's this wonderful um uh like uh principle but like uh word saubona uh that means we see you right and there is this video that gets played time and again in my life uh of a gentleman named orland bishop unpacking it Mm -hmm. and what that means and he'll he says like you know, freedom cannot be pursued out of self-interest. And one of the key questions is, who do I have to be so you could be free? And vice versa, right? Yeah. So I think the moment that I really understood that from a, like, justice lens, like, I started to see that I required some things mm-hmm. from if I'm in a space with anybody. Like, there's some foundational things, uh, including seeing me as a whole actualized fully actualized person Mm -hmm. and i think what white supremacy culture has done is painted a narrative that black people brown people across the spectrum but i want to say in particular black people Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna unpack that in a minute yeah because the anti-blackness in particular in this country but throughout the colonies Mm -hmm. like you know throughout (laughs) the world that has been colonized yeah Yes. There's an anti-blackness and a caste system. Yes. Right? So even if you pull back and we're talking about India, the darker your skin, the lesser you are perceived as, right? And so that's just period. That's just on period around the way history and the way we've been socialized. And so at some point I came to, oh, no, like I'm not buying into that. I'm actually a whole, full, complete person and I I, I will be interacted with that way and it was like new for me mm. to try that on because for so long and I and I say this as a light-skinned black woman mm-hmm. knowing fully well that my color my light shade of skin gets way more privilege mm-hmm. right and yet I'd still felt diminished within the systems of oppression I'd still felt um, invalidated dismissed but in different scenarios in these systems and so I can only imagine what a darker hued person Mm -hmm. would experience and so when I came to that I thought to myself you know I don't have any more work to do in the sense that I I will always do work on me right so this is not to negate the work I must do on me to see myself as fully resourced really but I don't have any more work to do to end like to end racism, I, I really feel like that's a white problem. I really feel like, 
you know, if I could get my heart right, meaning like I can open up and I can not like hold deep, bitter resentments, then we can move forward if white folks do their work. Right. Yeah. Is my lens at yeah. the moment. 100%. So how do, what do you think that looks like for white? I mean, I want to talk about history. I do. Because because <laughs> that's such an important part. But like, what is one like practical thing a white person could do to start their work? I was thinking about that same phrase um, in the explanation of Salbona of who do I need to be so that you can be free? Because that to me is like such a, a touchstone when I heard that. And, you know, we, we have get the opportunity to revisit that a yes, lot. Too. <laughs> and and it just it just became this question that I have to ask myself. Um, and and so um, for me that journey is a it's a daily thing. Okay. You know, um, it it's and it has been as much unlearning as learning. <laughs> and it mm-hmm. has been the deeper I go, the more it's a, um, it's like a peeling back of, of layers and understanding of um, like a coming, I think, to terms with how white supremacist culture and racism has been in, baked in, right? And been a part of the air that we all breathe, but in particular, I have to look at the way that it's been a part of the air that I breathe and how it manifests itself in my life and in my, how I walk in the world. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, the hardest work. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I, I think it's never, never just like the personal looking in work. It's also the looking out work and looking at how those systems that have white supremacy and racism baked in are operating and where do I intersect with those systems like every day Mm. and like what opportunities do I have to speak up and how do I do it? But then it's also like looking at like, what are my personal interactions like and and how do my blind spots appear? And Mm -hmm. it's just like, it's constant. It's also, I think the most meaningful and beautiful work a person can do. So I don't want to like present mm-hmm. it as like um, a negative thing. Mm-hmm. It's just hard, it is. you know. And I think for me personally, getting off the binary was really important mm. because I think one of the things that like more progressive-minded white folks. I'm going to just talk for myself mm-hmm. that I do <laughs> and I have I feel like I've seen it you know in in general also mm-hmm. is I think I have had a tendency to think of like racism as an you know as a as a as a, as a sort of like a non-moving category or label and like a racist person, a racist white person, or a non-racist white person, a good white person, or a bad white person. And I have always wanted to be in that good category, right? Mm -hmm. As if there was such a thing, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think a a thing that was really pivotal for me is to kind of understand that that's a total myth Mm -hmm. and that there's no such thing as a good white person or a bad white person. It's just 
how do you show up when you have all the opportunities that every se- single second of the day provi- you know mm-hmm. provides and of constantly unlearning racism and trying to stand up in something that's different and it's like never ending <laughs> yeah i mean the thing is right and i've been cuz first of all i think all of us are working on deprogramming things right, right? so right. like I am now doing a lot of workshopping around a framework by this scholar named Bobby Harrow. And Bobby Harrow created a framework uh, where she presents the cycle of socialization Hmm. and the cycle of liberation. Hmm. And basically, in a nutshell, she's saying we're born, we're socialized Mm -hmm. by our families, the culture, the community, the system. So, you know, you go to school, you're socialized, you go to work, you go to the doctor, you see what's going on in the criminal legal system. Like you are socialized by the messages that you get on social media, the media headlines, the right. It's a socialization process. It's a continual socialization process. You're constantly taking in messages consciously and subconsciously about especially other, Mm -hmm. the other category, right? Um, In a world that has been created with white superiority and white supremacy in mind, I think that we are bombarded by messages of white superiority constantly. And speaking for myself, constantly seeing these messages and, um, you know, having to grapple and figure out where where you are in that. Mm -hmm. So... You know, on top of that, you have the messages about gender, sexuality, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, you know, race and ethnicity are a part of that. But, like, there's so many messages, faith, you know, so if you could go on and on about how we're shaped into this person we are sitting here today. And I know that, like you mentioned, the binary, for me, as a a young person from Jamaican roots, right? Mm -hmm. I'm very rooted in Jamaican culture and there's especially gender and sexuality. There's a hugely homophobic sentiment, transphobic sentiment, um, and you message that all the time. Mm-hmm. So if you break out of that and you say, well, no, actually, I disagree, it's, it's hard because yeah. you risk not belonging. Right. Right, you risk being that voice that says something against the status quo, yeah. right? And I see that that shows up in so many ways across, you know, these experiences. Yeah. And I'm imagining for white folks, that's part of the burden. It's part of the journey, not hmm. even the burden, but part of the weight is being othered within their group, right? Right? right. When you, because yes. you talk about yeah. good and bad, and yeah. wanting to, you know, <clears throat> like you, you're talking about understanding that at any given moment it's not about good or bad right or wrong i'm right. a good white person but right. you could fall into that place of being silent yeah. when someone's saying something right. because you're in that place oh my god i'm in this moment with this group and i don't want to like rock the boat right i feel like that's real for so many people but i yeah. think there's a responsibility for white people yeah. white-bodied people like all of us but i think in the systems of oppression we're in there's a responsibility to be like Okay, <laughs> yeah. let me rock the boat yeah. now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think um, what white folks do in, in, in their families, um, you know, what I was going to say is sort of like in those spaces where it's other white folks, whether mm-hmm. that be workplace, family, that is where like 
kind of the rubber hits the road. Yes, I believe it would be. <laughs> yeah, because, uh-huh. I, you know, I, I think that separates out, uh, like, performative anti-racism versus, like, real anti-racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, I, yeah, I it, and then, whew, I got so many thoughts on that. <laughs> Um, Me too, child. Yeah, because there's, 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 you know, speaking up, and kind of one thing that I'm really working on in myself is knowing that um, I have to not be afraid to do it wrong, mm. you know, um, and to just get rid of that because perfectionism is also part of that white supremacy culture, <laughs> apparently. You know, <laughs> yeah, it really is, yeah. and so like. I have to. I, I am working on making peace with the fact that I'm not going to get it right, but that cannot stop me from trying, you mm. know. And that goes, you know, for speaking up. Um, mm. That goes for yeah. It just and I have, I have had been on the bleeding edge of learning that in my own life mm. of speaking up and doing it in a way where um, I know for me a, a lot of it has been working through anger. Mm-hmm. And being angry with white folks, mm-hmm. and I've had to like understand that like I think righteous anger has a place mm-hmm. in this in this world that we live in because there's a lot to be angry about. Mm-hmm. Um, but and it doesn't um, if if you're speaking to another individual from anger, a lot of times what you're saying can't be heard. And that part, so, unfortunately. Yeah. So, you know, like, that's a piece that I have really been working with in myself is, like, having to find the right um, moment and trying to find where I can speak in love and still with that kind of love that is is justice, mm-hmm. um, you know, oriented, right? Mm-hmm. And... I went to a um, a webinar that um, was the Standing Up for Racial Justice mm-hmm. search that was their mm-hmm, national mm-hmm. Um, uh, sort of online gathering. And they had a webinar that was, um, I, I should remember that. I should have made a note okay. to remember it. But it was basically about calling in white folks rather mm-hmm. than calling out. Mm. And it was that idea that, it, you know, calling out is... Um, Sometimes it feels really necessary, but it is, in the end, not going to bring about the kind of change that we need to bring about, mm-hmm. right? We had to call people in, mm-hmm. you know, if and not just make them feel defensive. And I, I, have, I have done that in my own life and seen how it's not completely effective. They're calling <laughs> so, out. Yeah. I think... <laughs> it's hard. So. Thank you. So I'm sorry. I'm like, I have a thought here, but, you know, like... It's basic, 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 fundamental thing to understand is fight, flight, freeze. Yeah. Flee, yeah. fight, flight. Yeah. Freeze and flee. It's like, like the body just reacts yes. to the sense yes. to any yeah. um, appearance of danger. Yeah. There is a physiological, biological mechanism at work when there is a perception of danger. And as someone who facilitates conversations, I'm constantly thinking about that mm. when I'm in a space with people. Yeah. And I'm constantly, and believe me, there is always room to call out. <laughs> you know, yeah. like there is an even, like as a facilitator, a lot of what you're doing is holding space. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, for me, I'm constantly working on being, I think it's like, um, there's a word that they use, but where you show up, neutral is not the word, but it's like multi-partial or something where it's like you're showing up for each person in the space. Mm-hmm. And like one thing I make a mental note of is like when you're in this role, it is about creating trust right. and a sense of safety because you ain't gonna get nothing done. Right. And there are so many times, especially in conflict, like, in, and, and I'm thinking about in institutions in particular where someone disagrees with someone or something, to, and they're, they're sending these emails, and the emails are from that very reactive place, right. and um, the words are coming from the reactive place. And so many times I have to say, whoa, 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 remember this person wrote that thing in that reactive place. Because if you understand that, then you understand like, do not communicate, <laughs> especially very important things, very heartfelt things, in a react- from a reactive place. Because yeah. that's fight, flight is happening as engaged in that moment. So yeah. thank you for bringing that in. Because I think, you know, that's why I think there's so many people who are, like, in this state of how do we... Um, like bring a mindfulness lens to some of these conversations how do we like know that if we just say you're a racist (laughs) that's just gonna engage that mechanism right yeah and i feel like people of color like i can i can speak for myself as a black person when i'm not in facilitator role Mm -hmm. when i'm not in facilitator role sometimes i don't feel like i had the patience to care so much right especially with wife i'm gonna just be completely honest especially if i'm talking to some white person who is engage in a system of oppression like for example this issue we started talking about earlier the movement against teaching truth Mm. like i have low tolerance sometimes for those things and (laughs) i want to be curious i want to try to understand some things but some things i just cannot like I, i or maybe i refuse to because you know growing up um you know i migrated with my mom to the United States when I was nine. Mm -hmm. And I began schooling in New York at nine in the fourth grade. And I pretty much went through the K through 12 experience and then went to uh, undergrad here. And so spent like all those years in the system, school Mm -hmm. systems. And they are lacking. And there was not this movement against the truth at that time. And yet I learned little to nothing about the history of indigenous people, of the Native American people. You know, there's a very kind of let's gloss over the history. You know, let's tell the pilgrims and Indian story over and over. Um, Let us, you know, say that this ship came here uh, in whatever, 16, whatever year it was. And let's just leave it there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the whole transatlantic slave trade is captured in a couple paragraphs. Yeah. And then, you know, we hear about Dr. King. They don't want to tell you anything about Malcolm X and anybody too yeah. revolutionary. Yeah. So you're lucky if your families give you that content, which I was fortunate to be in a family that believed in, like, letting you know some things. Mm-hmm. But, like, when I think about the K-12 through experience, it was lacking back oh. then. Yes. Okay, and we didn't have people up in arms. (laughs) There weren't banned books. Uh, They may not have made the book list with anything revolutionary, but they weren't banned. 
And so we're in a unique period where I think some folks think that there was this amazing history curriculum <laughs> that was endangering their little white kids. Uh, they're going to make them uncomfortable so they have to do this when there wasn't. Right. Well, no, the truth is this right. curriculum was lacking from the jump. Yeah. So where are we headed, Annie, if we cannot, you know, what do you think? Well, first of all, I'm going to keep my eyes on the prize knowing right. that this won't last. Right. But what do you think is the harm? You've touched on it earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, but what do you think is the true harm of not teaching the truth? to white students in particular, and maybe to all students, because I care mm -hmm. about the black, brown, indigenous, you know, all the students, I care about every student learning this history. So maybe, maybe two parts to this question. What do you think is uniquely harmful to white students? Mm -hmm. And what do you think is harmful just to the entire student body? Yeah. Um, the harm to, I mean, I, yeah, I think, Ultimately, the harm in not teaching history and not teaching truth, um, which is multifaceted, right? Right? In terms of that, like, there's what happened and then there's the lens through which we view what happened, right? So we need a lot of voices in order un to unpack that. And we need to kind of learn how to unpack that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we can't, we can't really change it until we know our history, you know, we're just going to be doomed, I think, to repeat it, mm. you know, and, um, and I think I do like, this is such a critical moment, you know, as you said, um, and I also think it's a critical movement, precisely because um, there are so many voices speaking truth. And I think that that is part like we're in that backlash against mm. that, mm -hmm. you know, and so I think that we're in the that, and, you know, there's a lot, like, I don't know or understand, but I, I, I feel and I've, you know, heard from, from people that I listen to who know a lot more than me that, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's said that we're in, you know, sort of the, the late stage white supremacist patriarchal capitalism. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when something is, is dying, then it, it, it's going out kicking. Mm. And I feel like we are experiencing that, you know? Mm. Um, and so there's a real positive thing, which is that, you know, change is happening and liberation is happening. Mm. And there's a real strong backlash against it. Yeah. And the thing is, is that backlash is, um, is brutal. And so I think we have to do everything that like we can to um, minimize the violence of that backlash. Mm. you know and push forwards towards liberation and um <laughs> and i think that's true for all kids and like i think of my my um i just think of like i, I was about to say my niece and nephew but i was like i have a lot of nieces and nephews i have my biological right. niece and nephew and then i right. have a lot of a lot of nieces and nephews yeah. and, and 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 nibblings right um which is the gender neutral yeah term right um and I think of what kind of world um, I want them to inherit and, and, and you know, like your kids. And mm -hmm. like, I think all those kids deserve to know the truth about our, our history so that they, because they're the ones that can move it forwards. Mm -hmm. um, they're the ones that can be different. And that they already are, 
Yeah. Like they already think so differently. They do. You know, mm -hmm. and we owe that to them. Mm -hmm. As well as to the ancestors that sacrificed everything mm -hmm. so that they could know a different world. So we know a, a slightly different world. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think all kids need that. Mm hmm. I mean, you asked specifically about white kids. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I mean, because your point, right, is the point that I think so many, like, of those who came before us made is like, if we don't learn this history, we will repeat it. Yeah. So if the kids in the classroom now aren't connected to what really happened, they're going to, to me, come with that same attitude of superiority. You know, like, <laughs> there's just such mm. a miss, so much mythology taught. Yeah. You know, so much like this bootstrap thing and this whole we individualism yes. that is just yeah. a falsehood yeah. about this country and how it was built and how it came to be what it is. You know, that I think if that isn't learned, we'll continue that air of superiority for the generations to come. And I think, to be honest, I think that's what white supremacy culture wants, mm -hmm. right? They want to embed this falsehood so that their kids can continue the legacy of that, which mm -hmm. is to me the harm, which yep. is to me the thing that I am laser focused on, like confronting and disrupting and let's say dismantling, Yes, you know? Yes. And the thing that I think it takes us all, right? And you mentioned backlash. And the, there's a book that Carol Anderson wrote called White Rage yeah, yeah. that I think captures that backlash. Every time yeah. there's an advance of black people in particular in this country, yeah. there is a backlash, there's an anger, there's this rage, right? And I'm fascinated by it in a lot of ways because my hypothesis is it comes from a place of insecurity and fear. 100%. Like, because secure and, and whole people aren't concerned if somebody else makes an advance. 100%. You know, they go, oh, good. You, yeah. Oh, look at y'all. Y'all winning. So are we over here, right? Yes. So it's like, you know. Yes. <laughs> but when you're like, oh, their advance means that we're diminished, which to me is a product of fear and, and um, security. Right. Yeah. So, like, I'm curious how you, how you think we. In particular, not we. So sometimes I'm sensitive about the fact that I like to use we because I'm. It's a universal we for me because we're all connected. Yeah. We're all human, right? But mm -hmm. let's say white folks. Yeah, yeah. How do white folks address their rage? I am. Yeah. I, In your opinion, I know. I, and let me tell you, I know you don't speak for all white folks because yeah. I don't speak <laughs> for all black folks, right? So you're one person, right? Right. A white yeah. white well, bodied person. But what's your thoughts? Yeah. You know, because we all have thoughts, and I think your your thoughts and your wisdom are are very valued in this space. Mm. Thank you. Well, I love that you brought up the piece that's fear and insecurity, and I was I was thinking like that is, I think, the most destructive and dangerous part of the lies of white supremacy because they mask, I think, a deep-seated knowing that like when you I'll say we when as white folks we know that whatever could be held up as an example of like something that white culture did 
we know that it was constructed on the lies of of the transatlantic slave trade and enslavement and genocide and stolen land stolen resources and exploitation and if you you know if we know that these things that are held up as examples are are built from from that then it's all a lie mm. right and and so it's all covering up a deep-seated fear mm. and a deep-seated knowledge that that you know and I, i'm struggling a little bit to to say it but like to articulate it to find the words but um kids are very like i feel like kids are not like naturally sensitive and they sense mm. when things are not truthful and they sense when there's stuff covering up other things and mm -hmm. so i think what we're unfortunately perpetuating um until we really look head on at this is we're, we're giving our kids they, they they know when something doesn't feel right mm -hmm. and so as a child i'm like i don't know a lot about like childhood development but i, I feel like when when kids know that there's something that's not being said that's a very like insecure mm -hmm. place and so mm -hmm. when white kids grow up knowing that they're not being told the truth right of their culture and their history mm -hmm. meaning the culture that perpetuates this myth of white supremacy then then they know that that's not right mm -hmm. and so that you can go one of two ways with that well there's probably many ways but anyways like you can go to a very insecure place rooted mm -hmm. in fear right which then ends up fearful and angry right or you can go to a place of like yes you know this is how it's been and this is what we want to change moving forward which right. is a, an em empowered place mm -hmm. you know so like knowing your truth is really it can be really hard to face and you have to like understand the harm that has been done by your people um but it's empowered mm -hmm. because you can do something about changing it if you know what it is so um yes that's i think the secret to really defusing that that white rage, the white rage that's based on on lies and insecurity, and um, like unearned privilege, mm. you know, because I think rage is fear. Yes, it is. Yeah. You know, um, and I I want to make like a distinction between that white rage, which is the rage of fear and the myth of not enoughness, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that. That there's a pie and if someone gets more of the freedom pie you're gonna get less right. which is not how it works yeah and then the the kind of anger that also comes with as as a white person getting conscious there's a different kind of rage that mm, right, <laughs> that's right sort of like right. a rage that looks at at those lies and and you know and working through that so it's it's two different i think Yes, and I do think uh, the the folks who are up in arms about teaching the truth mm -hmm. risk that rage at some point coming oh. out of their own children 100%. and they're like I I'm in spaces often where I can see wheels turning of like white bodied people around some of this stuff and like there's like a thing an awakening that happens sometimes when there's just a moment that the truth comes yeah. through in a way yeah. that it can connect. 
Yeah. And I can see where there's like a, a sadness and a rage yeah. that happened like, oh my God, like all of this has been a lie. Like, you know, and I think that there's going to be that reckoning within that yes. community or communities as well. So yeah. thank you yeah. for raising that. There's so many like places to go with a conversation like this. But, you know, I want to talk about white supremacy culture very specifically um, because I think that white folks do a it's like a fight, flight, flee, fight, flight, freeze, like the the brain kicks into defense mode when you yeah. use the words white supremacy culture. Yeah. And I was saying to um, someone else I talked to that when you say, like, for example, um, <laughs> I just had this conversation with Trisha Hershey, so it feels really resonant. But, you know, I said to her, like, when you say grind culture is violent, there are people who go, the word violent evokes this right. defensive, right? right? Where, I mean, it definitely, she unpacked the ways that violence looks and violence is not just physical that there's all kinds of ways and she's unapologetic and i agree with her that capitalism yes. and mechanisms like grind culture that have really preyed on people's bodies yeah. as a product um and as their value is violent so like tying that to what i'm about to say around white supremacy culture i think that i've seen white folks do the defensive thing as soon as you start talking about it and in moments, I've felt myself a little bit afraid of using the words because I don't want to create that um, reaction. And I stand by it, that white supremacy culture is violent and damaging. And I separate white-bodied people from white supremacy culture. So, mm -hmm. for example, while I do 100% stand by the fact that white supremacy culture is really the root of all the oppression that we see because it has its, you know, as Bell Hooks <laughs> names it, you know, it's imperialist, uh, capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchy, mm -hmm. like all those things are wrapped mm -hmm. into white supremacy yeah. culture. Yeah. So that's where I see it as harmful, where I separate and see a white bodied person as a human being like me like right. and they don't necessarily have to buy into white supremacy culture like i feel like you're someone constantly pushing against it like you said you're not perfect so you <laughs> you're letting yourself be you know at a given moment where you are but i see you as curious as questioning as constantly pushing against that culture and so I think I want to make that demarcation in this conversation that mm -hmm. I will continue to talk about white supremacy culture because even I, as a black body person, can buy into it. I right. can become an agent of white supremacy culture in a given moment. We see that. Right. <laughs> I mean, in the world. There's some folks, I'm not going to give them any airtime no, today, but there are definitely some folks who are agents of white supremacy culture, right, that we could name. Yeah. And so the thing that I'm saying, white supremacy culture comes to me and i'd love to hear your thought but i watched and i you and i talked about this docuseries called enslaved where they go back they do a lot of history they do history on the side of how the african like the african experience so you see samuel l jackson visiting uh i believe it's been in but don't get me, don't be mad if it's another country. But I believe it was Benin, where he's from. Mm -hmm. And so he's doing this tracing the lineage that way. But there's also the tracing the lineage of racism and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And they mention in the film that the idea of 
purity of blood, which is this idea that the whiter you are, the lighter you are, the better you are, comes out of Europe in the 1400s. And um, it was a European country. And I'm trying to remember it was Spain or Italy. Right now, I'm blanking on which country it was where it really originated but in the docuseries they name it Mm -hmm. and it was fascinating to me to see it come from that far from the 1400s and so as you see the travels of the europeans to the new world and you see how that like spread throughout europe but then landed here in the united states but also throughout the caribbean you see the imprint of that idea yeah everywhere (laughs) that like the lighter you are the better you are according to white supremacy culture and so what did they have to do they had to make the darker you are the less intelligent you are they had to make the darker you are the less human you are so i see that showing up still in our modern day right yeah and you only have to look i mean they're everyday examples but the one that hits me the most now is that LA City Council yeah, yeah. situation where here's this Latinx, this this person, this woman who identifies as Latina who is disparaging black folks like over and over. And they're in that group together laughing. And, and it just is an example to me of what happens. And so I say it's a lot, but I say white supremacy culture is a root. Yes. Of this yeah. to me. And yeah. it's not about white bodied people as much as it is about knowing and understanding that we've been tricked. Yeah, exactly. So what are, what are your thoughts about white supremacy culture? I couldn't agree more with, with everything that you just spoke. Um, and, you know, um, I think looking at the way that white supremacist, patriarchal, heteronormative, capitalism has created a pyramid mm. you know and, and for me um you know there's there's so many so many people and so many teachers who have like said this in in, in so many different ways that really helps but um uh sonia renee taylor's book uh mm-hmm. the body is not an apology she talks about the hierarchy of bodies right mm. and we're all in that hierarchy mm. you know and i think a pyramid is like a naturally like if you're at the top of that pyramid that's an unstable place to be mm. you know and I, I always think of capitalism as like the biggest pyramid scheme of all you know because wow. it's inherently unstable it's inherently exploitative and the thing is is like in that hierarchy of bodies which anti-blackness and the way that it was intentionally created starting in the 1400s in Europe you know um, that was created precisely to justify the unjustifiable, mm. you know, which is which is the enslavement of other human beings and the genocide of indigenous peoples. And like, how can you how can you justify that? Mm. You can't. And, and call yourself a human. Right. So you have to construct some crazy, crazy ideology. Mm. And that's what was constructed. And like, I mean, the, the the way that you have to disassociate from your own humanity mm-hmm. to perpetuate that, like, yeah. it's kind of, it's mind boggling to me. And it like, it go you know, and mm. I think 
as white folks began to understand that their own, first of all, that that was such poisonous Kool-Aid to be drinking, Mm. you know, and to start to understand that and then to understand that that we're all in this pyramid, right? Mm. And so, and most of us are not at the top. There's a very few people who are at the top, yeah. right? And so part of the way that, that that lie gets perpetuated is is you get, if you base it on, on, on this construction of race and tell people that, well, if you're, if you're white, then you have a shot at that, that, that top. And of course you get there through your own pulling up if your bootstraps and determination, not mm-hmm. inherited wealth that was stolen. Right, the lies. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's like, it keeps you shooting for that, that thing that isn't mm-hmm. really real. Because mm-hmm. the truth is, most of this is held up by folks that are gonna never have an opportunity to get up there, yeah. you know? And, and, and when we all realize that like, there's so many different things that, 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 that are keeping us lower in that hierarchy, you know, and it can be your uh, gender identity, it can be your sexuality, it can be your class, mm. you know. And as white folks start to kind of think, understand and unpack those those lies and understand that, like, the quickest way we all have of throwing that off is by understanding each other's struggles and, and finding some common ground mm-hmm. and some unity and solidarity i mean that's and i think that that is that is like i get so hopeful when i think about it but i also understand that that is so dangerous to the the systems of power and oppression Mm -hmm. and that is precisely why we're all and so like the city council and like anti-blackness in in other cultures um that are also oppressed I think is part of that divide and and, and keep yeah, yeah. keep down right, and we're just seeing it in action mm-hmm. all the time. Yep, yep. I, you know, I did a session recently and played the city council like a few minutes of the city council tape and like video for a group of people and was like, here we are, 2022. Yeah, yeah. And we actually have people in positions of power. Uh, who would be traditionally marginalized, considered traditionally marginalized, doing this thing against each other, right? Like doing the whole plane right into the hands of right. white supremacy. Exactly. Like exactly. Being the agent yeah. of oppression to like laugh and kiki and do all of that um, about another group. And again, because anti-blackness is so rooted into the DNA. And actually, they made uh, remarks about indigenous people as well. Mm -hmm. And so those two groups, I find the Native American, the indigenous folks, and the black folks are particularly um, uniquely, distinctly placed in the American context in a way that makes them targets over and over. And I think there, there, there has to come a time and I feel like the time is now to say no to yeah. that and not allow yeah. for that. So I want to ask uh, one more, at least one more question on this front. Mm-hmm. We started this conversation talking about imagining justice and like creating a world that we want to be different. And I am part of a, a master's program right now 
in social justice and community organizing where I just have the great fortune of exploring a lot of ideas at the moment. And in one of my last classes, the entire thing was about like, you know, political systems, models, frameworks that are not capitalist, Mm -hmm. that are, you know, alternatives to capitalism. Mm -hmm. And there are many, right? And, you know, you could certainly talk about communism. You could certainly talk about democratic socialism. There's like many of them. And the one that I felt drawn to wasn't so much a um, governance model. I think it is kind of, but it was just like a a liberatory model. Um, And it comes out of the Zapatistas Mm. um, in Mexico. And it came in response to the North American Free Trade Agreement, which (laughs) President Clinton, a Democrat, (laughs) uh, made, you know, put into place during his time. And so that to me shows that like, this is not a Democrat, Republican, uh, this party, that party. This is like a humanity, like something bigger, this conversation and some of these, and the Zapatistas, you know, from what I've read and understood, come with the idea that first of all, to lead, you have to listen and obey, mm-hmm. right? Second of all, like there's this idea that, you know, a connection to the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not about money grabs and power grabs. It's about like sharing the resources and sharing power in a way that is very humane, right? And um, it just struck me, especially in reading, that it's not about taking power and doing what the other people, what we see the the systems doing now. It's about creating something new. And I do feel like we're in that place as a, just as a people and creating something new. And um, you mentioned the the pyramid Hmm. that Sonia Renee Taylor outlines. Mm -hmm. And I recently talked to Diego Perez, who also mentions the, he calls it the triangle, Mm -hmm. which is a similar thing and then he says well what if we had a circle instead Mm. what if it was like everyone had their essential needs met wouldn't we see something very different if people weren't worried about being hungry and um sick and you know in debt because they get sick and like you know so i would love i'm inviting you to imagine something what Mm. do you think we could create if we step back from the systems of oppression and really did create something new. Yeah. What would be possible in your mind, Annie? And this is this, nothing is off limits. You I know? love that question. I love that question, Damali. Because we do, we have to like be able to see beyond what we're wanting to dismantle, mm-hmm. you know, um, and see what we want to build. It's a beautiful question. And it's one that I think that I, I feel like is is being asked and so like i I spend time with that Mm. you know um and i also feel um like i'm still working for myself on a on a a clear answer right right um i love the idea of a circle and i love the idea that that we have enough you know Mm. and so um we have enough and, and, and a circle with care at the center of, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and the true sense of, of beloved community, which doesn't leave anyone out. I remember when I started to dig deeper into Dr. King's teachings and I kind of, I always thought 
I just had an idea of beloved community as like the people that I love, you know, right. the people you and get along with. Got to that part of like, oh, yeah. it's everybody, um, and that's that's a whole other notion. And so, you know, that that idea um, that everyone has to be in that circle, you know, mm-hmm. if it's true, mm-hmm. truly, you know, um, and and so yeah, it, it you know, it's it's that's a a huge challenge and it's a beautiful challenge but and I feel like um, w- one of the the people that is and the movements that has really helped me start to work on my imagination um, is um, Adrian B. Brown and her mm-hmm. you know emergent mm-hmm. strategy yeah. and I feel like and there's a lot of people's teachings you know starting I mean many you know her mentor Grace Lee Boggs mm-hmm. and just, there's so many pieces of that um Mm-hmm. But the idea that like starting small, like, and we just practice it all the time mm-hmm. in our relationships, and and when I start thinking about that, then I I get really excited because and I get really hopeful because I see it all around me, and then when you start to see it, you can kind of start to help grow it, you mm-hmm. know, um, you know, we touched on this earlier with with talking about. Um, just my musical family, Samba Da, but but Danda um, Daora, who's our, our lead singer and also just just my bestie, mm-hmm. um, has been a huge teacher to me in that because she's somebody who creates community all the time, mm-hmm. and it's a community that makes room for everybody. Um, she teaches a regular dance class in Santa Cruz, and we have folks who are unhoused who um, come and who are part of the drummers mm-hmm. that play for class, wow. and. Um, it's just, it's like a community, and there's just all kinds of people who come as students. There's folks who come as musicians, and it's just such an example of like com- com- creating beloved community in a moment, mm-hmm. you know? And so I can start to see like how the, the, the vibrations of that just ripple outwards, mm-hmm. and we all come away fed and, and, and nourished and seeing something else possible than closing mm-hmm. the doors and keeping people out because they don't maybe have the same kind of economic situation that you do. Right. Yeah. You know? Um, I don't know. So I, I feel like there's already so many of the seeds of that here. And we just, like, grow them and water them. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And, and that's that's going to disrupt everything. Because when we're looking at humans as humans and not as um, producers mm-hmm, and right. cogs in a wheel, that part it changes everything. Hmm. Thank you, Annie. Um, you know, Donda. When you see Donda, when you encounter Donda, when you're in Donda's space, there's something you feel. Mm-hmm. Like you feel a genuine kindness. Um, you know, definitely someone committed to liberation because she speaks it. She will say it on yeah. a stage. She'll say it. But there's also like a real kindness that I feel when I'm in Donda's presence, your presence. But like there's some people in the world that you could tell that they really do believe in beloved community. Yeah. And what I love that you said is that it's not easy, that part. Like, Mm -mm. you know, I see Mm -hmm. beloved community as the ultimate belongingness, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea of belonging. And what I've learned in doing belonging work at my day job is that that's when you get tested. (laughs) When you say you're committed to belonging, that's when somebody 
comes for you and does a thing or or lights up the whole space you're so in with anger so. and you're like okay what am i to do with the, like it's the question of how can i who do i have to be in this moment mm. to allow that person to be free and who do i have who do they have to be to allow me like what mm. it's a real test of that soul bono yes you know yes and I try so to much. tell people it's not easy. Like mm -hmm. it, it, just because we say that that's what we're about or living, it's not easy. Cause that thing will throw you when the person's like accusing you of something or mad at you about something. Um, and so I just believe that um, there's so much work to be done and the individual work. I think Adrian Marie Brown captures this really nicely when mm -hmm. uh and i'm paraphrasing adrian marie brown so just but there's like an incremental way right that yeah. you know and like an, a, yeah. a way of like being like water like you know knowing that we're flowing you know things are always changing and that we can expect change to be tiny first and then it grows yeah and i argue and say often that if i can change it connects to something bigger so like if i show up changed mm -hmm. like more focused on beloved community and really creating real true connection then i go into the space with that energy it changes the space i'm in so yeah. the office this classroom the you know the stage it changes it and so that then allows for it to connect to the other people in that space. And somehow I think that it flows to them. And then, you know, they if they change, if they kind of work on their socialization, reprogramming, deprogramming, and we do that that way, we can shift things. Yeah. <laughs> now yeah. it might take more time, yeah. but we can. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like... Being on the growing edge of that change, personally, is is you know it's scary, and 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 having to like I know I, thought, I have a bunch of thoughts crashing into my head all yes, at the same please. time, but um like I thought um when you know those those places where where it really challenges us you know to show up and where there's there's conflict is is. There's so much potential there, but it's hard to see that when it feels like, like conflict, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, and for me, yeah, that's that's really the um, the piece that I feel like is is such a growing edge. And I feel like what's been like invaluable to my growth personally has been having people in my life, um, you know, friends and chosen family who love me enough to to call me in and call me up you know mm -hmm. and it's all help me see my blind spots mm -hmm. you know and that like um and it's hard it's really hard it's mm -hmm. really hard to have to look at you know something that where i just let my white privilege and 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 all of the sort of like internalized racism blind me from from mm -hmm. being better yeah. you know and that's like it's just it's the hardest thing but yeah. it's it's the only way yeah it's the way um yeah. thank you for this conversation annie is there anything that you'd like to add that i didn't ask you mm. i covered so much i know so much and thank you for your questions damali and like just your insight 
Um, I was thinking like on my own sort of just personal journey um, that I was trying to think of like what I have wanted and looked for in terms of hoping to hear from other white folks mm. who, you know, because I feel like I've learned so much of what I learned, ha have learned has been from reading um, black activists and act activists of color, indigenous also, and, and, and black and brown folks. And also just both in terms of reading and music and then also just community and, mm -hmm. and friendships. Mm -hmm. And I feel like um, I have wanted also to, 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 to find voices doing that work um, of white folks talking about dismantling white supremacy. And, and there's plenty of folks out there doing amazing work. Mm -hmm. But I was just thinking like, like what, I really feel like it's just the, the work of having those conversations, like we have to have them on the local interpersonal level and we have to have them on the national level, mm -hmm. you know, and just mm -hmm. doing that, that work the truth and re reconciliation work, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> I, and reparations, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It's like the truth telling and then the work of repair. And I feel like it's exciting that that's starting to be more, I think, in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, okay. but it's just crucial. It's yeah. crucial. Yeah. You so, know, I agree with you. Yeah. You know, I agree with you. Thank you, Annie. Um, I really appreciate you talking to me today for the soul-centered conversations freedom chronicles um work i appreciate annie was also featured on my intro and outro so you know um you'll hear it and so i appreciate all the contributions you've made to this particular uh piece of content that i'm birthing again i'm rebirthing because i I, as an artist, I continue to have all these ideas like, oh, I need to go in this direction. I need to go in this direction. And I feel like you've been one of those people who have held the vision of what things could be with me in a way that I just am so grateful for. So thank you, Annie. I appreciate you. Soul-centered conversations, contemplating. What moves to be making? What is the next path in this pasture? 